Well, we're still here, so let's talk about it. Today I'm going to discuss the not-so-good death. I've talked plenty about the good death and will continue to do that because that's what we're striving to achieve. But let's face it, the not-so-good death, or sometimes what's called the bad death, is a thing. Let's dive in. So, we've talked about the good death, but what if death is not so good? Picture for yourself what that may be. When I think of this scenario, I think of a friend who told me following multiple surgeries and procedures that she never wanted to end up like that. Or a person who died alone, only to be found days later because a smell emanated from their living space. Or someone who was kept alive on machines long after her brain had died, body oozing and breaking down while the family argued about what to do. These scenes break my heart. I feel for those who died under these conditions. For the one found long after death, where was the family? Where were the friends and neighbors? That sounds judgmental, and it probably is, as some folks prefer solitude. My apologies for judging. I do feel for that person just the same. To me, that is an example of a not-so-good death. Was that person in pain, and for how long before the person had succumbed to death? I chill when I think about that. Charles Garfield, a psychologist, described a friend he tended to while dying in an article that I had read. I'm quoting here. Unfortunately, deaths like my friends are not that rare. Though more than 70% of Americans surveyed say they want to die in their own home without unnecessary procedures to extend their lives, 50% of all deaths occur in facilities away from home. Of those, 40% occur in ICUs where physicians are charged with doing everything they can to keep a person alive regardless of the outcome, end quote. Mr. Garfield spoke of a palliative care physician and said this of him, The promise of the good death was one of the outcomes that had inspired the physician to pursue a career in palliative care. But not all patient stories play out according to this script. And we need to admit that for some patients, death can be difficult to tame. End quote. I think of pain, many procedures, isolation, and maybe despair. The palliative care physician shared about a man he had been caring for. The patient told this physician that he had lived with his disease for many years and was hoping for two more years to make it to the milestone of 85 years alive. He wanted to have a big party. The doctor asked the patient of his plans for that birthday. The patient wanted cake and maybe some wine, even though they were in the hospital, and he wanted his family gathered at the hospital bedside. The doctor asked the patient what would happen if he didn't get the two years. The patient replied, We'd all just tell a white lie and pretend I made it. We'd have the party early. A positive outlook for a long life coming to an end. A week later, surrounded by family, the party took place with cake. Everything needing to be said had been said. Funeral plans had been made. And there was celebration. The patient's body had held on for years, and, as the doctor said, it would not go quietly. 
The patient's pain was difficult to control given his high tolerance for morphine after so many years of pain. But eventually the staff was able to give the patient and his family a little relief. The patient died the next day, says the doctor, sweaty and exhausted. His could have been a good death. It wasn't. Rather than being filled with the mixture of quiet laughter and tears of a loving family saying goodbye to their patriarch, the air in the room had been thick with anxiety and suffering. That is the not-so-good death. Mr. Garfield was so moved by this doctor and other people that he had come into contact with, he started an organization called Shanti, S-H-A-N-T-I dot org. I'm going to include that in the show notes for you. This foundation, he began, is a body of volunteers whose sole job is to be matched up with someone with terminal illness or suffering in some other way. And they are their companion. They do check-ins. They answer questions, maybe run errands, just to be there for someone who otherwise does not have anyone. I'll share now uh, from some more studies and articles. They say it better, so I'm just going to quote and give credit to these authors. I'm quoting now. Emergency rooms, ICUs, and 911 are set up to preserve life and are not typically supportive of the conditions for a good death. If a person is suffering tremendously, there may be cause to get emergency help. But for most situations, when you throw a person into the larger health care system, the prevention of death becomes the imperative, and that can serve to increase suffering for the dying person. One has to be very persistent and clear to avoid procedures that are unwanted, to insist on palliative or hospice care instead. It can help to have an advanced directive or a physician orders for life-sustaining treatment in writing and communicated to loved ones. But often a person also needs a vocal advocate, a family member, friend, or volunteer caregiver. This continues... Quote, we begin by grounding this editorial in our current experiences as clinical faculty. The specific goals of promoting good deaths for their patients and the broader aspiration of changing the healthcare system to enable good deaths for all draw many geriatric and palliative medicine fellows to this field. Most seem to espouse certain beliefs about what constitutes good and bad deaths. Typically, a good death is described as a death that occurs at home with the support of hospice surrounded by family. A death in the intensive care unit is labeled as a bad death. In fact, ineffective cardiopulmonary resuscitation, described by trainees as flogging the patient, has become a medical ritual that precedes what most doctors would describe as a bad death. These notions are deeply embedded in medical training. Hospital culture and are part of the hidden curriculum that U.S. medical students and residents learn on hospital wards. Continuing in the quote, We are at the turning point of a rapidly aging society, not only nationally but globally. Advances in modern medicine have succeeded in not only postponing death, but also slowing the dying process. Most other adults today are going to bear the burden of disability, dementia, and multiple chronic illnesses for months to years before succumbing to them. Death itself has arguably shifted from being an event at a single point in time, becoming a process that occurs over years, 
to decades. Let that sink in a moment. All right, here's another quote. The literature suggests that health professionals working in palliative care have developed an idealized concept of dying, which has been labeled the good death. This paper reports the results of a preliminary qualitative study which compared the concepts of a good death used by patients and staff in a palliative care unit. Semi-structured interviews designed to elicit perceptions of good and bad deaths were conducted with 18 patients and 20 health professionals. The transcribed interviews were content analyzed. There were major differences between the views of the patients and the staff. The patients' descriptions of a good death were diverse and included dying in one's sleep, dying quietly with dignity, being pain-free, and dying suddenly. In comparison, staff characterized a good death in terms of adequate symptom control, family involvement, peacefulness, and lack of distress. While a bad death was described as involving uncontrolled symptoms, lack of acceptance, and being young. The findings suggest that patients and staff differ in their conceptualizations of a good death. I'll continue. While the hours or days before death are important, the focus should be on the weeks and months before death when symptoms and needs increase and interventions can have a significant impact on the well-being of patients and families. Thus, a good death should mean making the last weeks, not minutes, of life valuable and meaningful. This is more appropriate for causes of death that have a prodrome before dying, such as cancer, congestive heart failure, and COPD, which are estimated to cause 50 to 70% of deaths. That kind of goes in what I was talking about in one of the episodes of The Good Death. This idea of a terminal illness, you have time to think about your wishes and your desires. Obviously, in a sudden death, it doesn't necessarily happen. Okay, enough studies. Let's look at the response to this question from Quora.com. The question was, why would a doctor ask about DNR or do not resuscitate? The reply came from a gentleman. The quote was, ever done CPR? An arrest is a pretty violent affair in crude terms if ribs don't get broken, especially if the patient is over age 80, then it probably wasn't done right. We ask about resuscitation orders because often having someone attempt to slam your sternum into your mediastinum isn't the best way to spend your final mortal moments. 150 to 300 joule shocks are similarly unfun. We'll do it if you want us to, but not if you don't. You can choose, and we need you to communicate that choice while you're compost mentis, because it's useless when you're not. End quote. Compost mentis is defined as having full control of one's mind or being sane. Thank you, Google. I'll continue with his reply. I think one more observation is pertinent, which is that resuscitation isn't very successful. If someone is very old and sick and then one dies, we usually don't have the power to bring them back. So if someone is really dying and they don't want to be resuscitated, they are likely to get their way. Many patients have advanced directives, which may be legal documents or merely information held by a family member or a healthcare power of attorney that guides whether a DNR order would be entered into the chart upon admission 
or maybe upon change in the patient's condition. But again, before entering a DNR order, the team should address the situation with the patient or family as appropriate. Good communication is a key to good health care. End quote. I like that last statement. Good communication is a key to good health care. Well, there you go. Some harsh realities of the not-so-good death. I could not speak of the good death without including these pieces of commentary and study data. There is death that is not peaceful or with loved ones watching closely, standing by for each phase of transition to death. Ask a paramedic and you'll get an earful of what happens to bodies they come upon in the field. Ask an ER doctor and the descriptions would be similar. Death is not always pretty and it is not always good. These articles above don't really even mention the grief and sadness that comes with losing a loved one. That is a fact I cannot deny. Death happens. Losing loved one hurts. Broken relationships hurt. Thinking of dying in pain hurts. As much as I try to think I can control my final outcome, I really cannot. Assuming I die from a long-term illness or am struck with some ailment unexpectedly, as I was two weeks ago, the best I can hope for is that my family recalls what we have discussed and can step in if the caregiving team at the ER or hospital or wherever I might be is performing life-saving measures and stop treatments I have decided that I do not wish to undergo. Let me reiterate the response by the wise writer of the Quora.com post. Good communication is a key to good health care. End quote. A key, not the key. There is so much more to say and read and learn. But for now, I hope this inspires you to examine your own wishes and have that conversation. I'm thankful you listened today. Please visit my website and drop me a question or a topic for future discussion. Also, in the show notes, you'll find any reference materials such as names or book titles that I discussed in this podcast. Until next time, folks, take care.